0: Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Good morning. I'm, uh... I want to quickly add my big thank you to the Benzels for hosting last night. What a beautiful piece of property. And, and uh, you tell they really, I mean, they, there was a lot of work they did setting up, having some activities ready for uh, the children. Thank you. And uh, rigged candy corn game and everything else for everybody else. Uh, I didn't know you couldn't go over. Otherwise, I would have guessed 688. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but really, thank you guys. Thanks so much. Uh, the wind, yeah, the, the, it would have been absolutely perfect. The temperature was ideal, but that breeze was, was pretty sharp, wasn't it? Uh, but anyway, thanks. Let's do it again next year. huh? Can we get a commitment from you right now? So, okay. <laughs> I'll let you think about it. All right. Listen, uh, I'm gonna, let me, let me uh, prepare you right now for, for something I'm going to do at the beginning of this message, and we'll get it out of the way and move on. But I'm going to meddle just a little bit. I just want to just kind of brace yourself. I know I already said I kind of maybe stepped on toes during the communion message. I'm going to stomp them right now. Uh, (laughs) Not right now, but toward the beginning of this, and then we'll move on into the meat of this message. I just want to unburden myself, I guess. Uh, Kelly and Connie McClellan were here last week, uh, and I want to say that if you missed Sunday night, you missed a lot. And I tried to tell you that the things they were going to be sharing Sunday night were super important and something that we really needed to hear. Uh, and I get it. And I don't know. I, I Maybe you see where I'm going with this. Hardly anybody was here Sunday night. Uh, it was a bad Wednesday night crowd Sunday night. And I want you to know that, number one, I get it. They are not the most dynamic speakers in the world. Uh, it's not like coming to watch Keith Moore or or somebody, you know, they might not be the most, in terms of their style, might, not the most gripping, but talk about a lifetime of experience and dedication and wisdom. It was such a pleasure getting to know them and hearing their heart, especially Sunday night, because you realize, wow, these people have really, they have invested their lives into figuring some things out and making, this is what they do now is they make connections between young missionaries and churches like this who can get them out on the field. They, uh, they shared some things about world missions that were so encouraging because you know you we hear one side of it a lot where man the the crushing uh persecution and the attacks on the church and everything and it was so refreshing to hear uh, uh the number of missionaries young people that are still flooding the mission field and how the united states is still such a great supplier of missionaries and a great supporter of missions um they told stories of their time in Indonesia in some very tough ground. And I know they're not the only ones over there, but this is something we talked about when Gary Crowell was here. You know, uh, there was a time when Indonesia, in fact, when Kelly and Connie McClellan went to Indonesia, it was a 98% Muslim nation. And Indonesia is really spread out. But in, in pockets of Indonesia, Indonesia, it was the most dangerous place to be a Christian possibly in the world. Severe persecution. And because of people like Kelly and Connie McClellan, we now get the statistic from Gary Crow that, that Indonesia is now 25% Christian. This is in less than a generation. This is the encouraging kind of thing we hear and we need to hear. And, uh, you know, we have some great, great ministries that this church is connected with. Uh, You hear about it every time we we get ready to take an offering for a missionary. And we treated them right, by the way. We gave them $5,000. And they were blown away. I think because this is historically such a great giving church, and because we have given offerings bigger than that, sometimes we... Can fail to sense the impact of an offering like that. But you have to understand this is not something they encounter very often. They can go to a church 10 times this size and not get an offering that size. So when they walk out, I remember Irvin Williams, last time he was here, I think we gave him 6,000. And he told us uh, he was driving up. We were just going to meet up at El Toro for lunch. He said, we actually opened the check on the way over there. He says, I about tore the car up (laughs) <laughs> they saw the number and just lost control, uh, and this kind of thing happens. So I'm glad we're able to do that for them. But, but I am. I think about the the people that we support and and the the reach that this little church has in the world. But I'm not convinced that anybody is doing more for world missions than Pioneers International is. They are really they are so dialed in and organized there. And I think he said they're in uh, they're in 203 specific people groups that they're ministering to? I might have the... uh, I can look up those statistics for you. Anyway. uh, Here's what... Here's the meddling part. We haven't seen him in over 15 years. Which is why I wanted to bring him in. And when I schedule somebody for a Sunday morning and a Sunday night, that is for you, not for them. You guys are going to give big, whether they're here for 15 minutes or 15 meetings. I wanted them to have the opportunity, I'm thinking 15 years. Last time they were here, they were in Indonesia working in Indonesia, I think. I know they were. A lot has happened since then, and we've been supporting them for a long time, and I wanted as many people as possible to hear that. Now, you can go get the CD, but it's not the same. And, of course, you know, I'm not looking at anybody in particular, because if you weren't here Sunday night, I don't know why you weren't here Sunday night. And I know there are legitimate reasons not to be here. What I, My joke Wednesday night was, and that's totally fine. From now on, what we're going to have, if you miss an, an evening meeting, you have to bring a note telling us why you missed the evening meeting so we can determine whether it was an excused absence. And after three excused, inexcused absences, you are disfellowshipped. I'm kidding. We're not going to do that. But I tell you, I promise you, there's not a preacher in America that hasn't thought that way at one time or another. And... We hardly ever do that. It's not like you can, oh, here we go, another Sunday night meeting. We don't do them very often. Somebody suggested to me this week, and it's a great suggestion, one I had already been thinking about. What about a week of meetings? Can we get somebody in and do do like a week-long revival type thing? And I'll tell you who I already had in mind, because two guys have already expressed interest in coming in next year. They haven't booked either one of them yet. Keith Moore and Tony Cook. These are two guys who were contempt. They've taught together at Rama. I had them both as instructors, uh, and I'm thinking, what a cool thing this would be, because they know each other. They would know how to flow together, and whether it would be like, oh, somebody at the first part of the week, somebody at the second half, or they could be here and trade off. I don't know. What an exciting thing. There's no way in the world I'm going to schedule that if I can't get 60 people to come out to one meeting. And you thought, well, I'd come out for Keith Moore and Tony Cook. If you don't respect this church and the fact that God has laid certain people on my heart, sorry. I need to see. You need to see. They need to see faithfulness and commitment to what who, to who God is bringing in today. And if that sounds harsh, I'm sorry. If it sounds unfair, I'm sorry. I, I'm, if I sound mad, I'm sorry. It's it's just. You missed something that God had for you. It isn't about, I swear it's not about, I was embarrassed as a pastor. It's not it at all. Believe me, So they see a $5,000 check, they don't care if there were five people here that night. They're going to share that God put on their heart, and they're going to say, wow, God blessed us. I'm sure they kind of wondered. They didn't say a word, but I'm sure when they looked out there and, wow, we wondered the same thing I did. So can we just keep that in mind? And uh, again, if you can't be here, you can't be here. But if you didn't come just because you didn't feel like it, that's, that really is, uh, it's something that's hard for me not to take personally. Because again, I believe this was God's idea. I believe I heard from God when I scheduled them for that extra meeting. There was a specific reason for it. And I know it works a hardship. Uh, not a great hardship when you, when you, when you go to stack up the hardships of the world, getting out and coming to a, to a meeting at, on Sunday night once in a while isn't a genuine hardship, but I get it. Once you're home on Sunday, getting ready for the week, work week. But, you know, we scheduled it at 6 o'clock, so it would be over by 8. Uh, anyway, enough of that. We'll get back to what the things they were sharing for a second as we build up to what I really want to talk about today. You know, I'm thinking of guys, you know, I mentioned Tony Cook. Here's a guy who travels the world And uh, we will probably have him in at some point next year. I just don't know if it's going to be part of the kind of scenario I was talking about earlier. Uh... But his travel schedule is just enormous. I can't remember how many days, over 200 days he spent traveling last year and going all over the world. And a lot of what he does, he does evangelistic meetings. He shares with me. He's He's probably the best guy we have in terms of the people that we support. He does the best job of communicating regularly. Here's where I'm at. Here's what happened tonight. Here's what happened this week. And he does meetings where hundreds of people get saved, even though he's not called as an evangelist. He's an itinerant teacher. A lot of what he does, though, is church training, leader training. And so as a result of what he's doing, you know, it's kind of an extension of what he did at Ramah. There are thousands of ministers who at least part of what they are ministering is because of what Tony Cook put in them as an instructor. And now he's traveling the world doing this all over the place, equipping ministers all over the globe to do it, in their countries, in their cities, in their cultures. And so it's, it's kind of hard to quantify when I say, well, nobody's doing more than pioneers. Almost looks that way. But then you look at a guy like Tony Cook. Well, if you look at the ripple effect and how many people he's trained, uh, maybe he's doing more. You think about Neil and Danette and the 40 church, even though they're not on our regular monthly support, we, we, we do have them in every year. Uh, but they've, uh, they've planted over 40 Solid churches there in Niger now, and uh, built up, they are not just like, well, we're here and we pastor these churches. No, they've raised up pastors who are raising up pastors. This is going to be a work that survives them long after they are gone. Uh, Asia Center for Biblical Studies, training workers there in the Philippines. Uh, Gary Crowell, who we mentioned in his work in Asia and other parts of the world. Dennis and Jeannie Cook. You know, they're not just out there uh, digging wells for Indians. They are training Panamanian ministers. They have pastors conferences for indigenous uh, pastors there. Um, and and, it's, and all of them are having this a real impact. And we have a part in all of that. This is what I get excited about when I hear from the missionaries who dig, in the, uh, dig into the statistics and everything else. And that was, uh, that was what I found so encouraging from the McClellans, especially Sunday night, was this news that, this, that even though it is true that there is some really dis- discouraging uh, persecution that's taking, places, uh, taking place in all, in all over the world and beginning to take place here, the gospel is flourishing in places that we never would have imagined. And again, people of all ages, including young people, still flocking to the mission field. I shared one statistic with you last week before he shared it with us, which was that the fastest growing church per capita is Iran. Anybody remember what the second place is? Afghanistan. The church is growing faster per, uh, per capita in those two places. Than anywhere else in the world. And uh, only God could do that. But He's doing it with some very brave, some very courageous people who are going into those countries, learning the language and, and uh, sharing Christ at risk of life. And here we sit, sometimes bemoaning our loss of rights and bemoaning our loss of influence as believers in the freest nation on the planet. And in the face of, of, again, um, the concerns I'm going to share, and I'll share a couple of specific ones at the end of this message, are legitimate concerns. But it's frustrating to me to see that many people's reaction is to more or less batten down the hatches, take on kind of a uh, fortress mentality. We're just going to ride out the coming storm. I've shared this before. Uh, And I don't have a lot of detail on it other than the fact that I know some of the people who were involved. In the church that I pastored in Farmer City, uh, there were several people. This happened before I got there. Uh, So I'm not taking any credit for this. Thank God. But there were people. uh, And we're not talking. These are people, if you met them, they were serious Christians. They were Productive members of society. They weren't wackos, okay? But one by one, these families up, they just up and moved down. They all went to the same area in, down in rural Missouri to live off the grid. And they are basically, it's a, there's, the only way I could describe it would be a, to call it a compound compound you know i don't think they're they're walling themselves in and arming themselves although they might be but they are basically they are shut, they are withdrawing from society to ride out the coming tribulation whether that's the tribulation or not this is their response to how america is becoming anti-christian we are going to just we're just going to again withdraw from society and survive this And uh, I want you to turn to Zechariah chapter 2. Because you've heard my response to that attitude before. Uh, We're called, you know, Jesus told us to occupy until he comes. And we are not doing the kingdom of God any favors. We are not benefiting the kingdom of God at all if all we do is withdraw and survive. You know, our greatest prayer, if all we're supposed to do is just survive until he comes again, why don't we just pray constantly that he just takes us home? Lord, get us out of here. We're not doing anything for you. If we're going to be here, we need to be engaging the culture around us. All right? And uh, Zechariah will address this. Zechariah is writing this. I don't know. I know it's been a while now. But you remember toward the end of the Old Testament as well. Especially in the, in the history books. Before we get to the poetry. What we see is the, the kingdom of Israel has fallen to the Assyrians. The kingdom of Judah has fallen the Babylonians, and a great number of them are carried away captive into Babylon. The ones that remain behind are living under the rule of the Babylonians, and then uh, the Medes and the Persians rise to power, and so uh, by the time of Nehemiah, the Persians are in power when Cyrus Uh, delivers his edict allowing the jews to return to their homeland to jerusalem specifically to rebuild the walls of the city to rebuild the temple of their god this is a great moment of favor but as you may remember under the leadership of zerubbabel and nehemiah and ezra uh, only a handful a relative handful went back And they did rebuild the temple, and they did rebuild the wall, and there was a celebration. But the decades go by, and many of the Jews are still living in Persia. You think, why? Well, they're comfortable. They've been there for 70, 80, 100 years now. Some have been born and died. This was home. But God is saying, I'm calling you to go back home. And he raises up prophets like Zechariah to tell the people, come on, you were released years ago. This is still the land I promised you. And so we'll start reading at this uh, in verse one of chapter two. Then I raised my eyes and looked and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And so I said, where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width And what is its length? And there was the angel who talked with me, going out. And another angel was coming out to meet him, who said to him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls, because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. So this guy, uh, Zechariah sees this man with a measuring line in his hand. He says, where are you going? I'm just going to go measure the city of God. And then an angel comes by and says, go tell that guy not to bother. You're not going to be able to measure it because there are going to be no walls to measure. It's going to be too full to put walls around. And it's going to grow too fast for you to measure it in the first place. But, not without, but But being without walls doesn't mean you're going to be without protection. I myself, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire around Jerusalem, around the people of God. So he tells the guy, stop measuring. There's a, uh, he says, well, I'll be the glory in her midst. I read this, uh, I should have written the two guys' names down. Uh, a couple of Australian pastors who wrote uh, an illustration about this. They said, uh, as opposed to some countries where they build fences, even enormous fences, to keep their cattle uh, secure and in one spot. In Australia, whether it's sheep or cattle or whatever livestock, they generally don't fence anything in because water is so scarce. What they do is they dig a well, and the cattle never stray very far from that source of water. And so what we see here is this picture of God. Number one, no fence, and yet there is protection. It's a sort of a mobile fence, the fire. And we, I like to picture that fire constantly moving out in a circle and never shrinking back, right? That we, as we continue to inhabit the land, the fire moves out ahead of us. So we do have the protection. But what else is it? He's the well. He's the glory in our midst. And so we are never going to stray far from that source. Fence or no fence, we are going to stay together as his people. Where God, our source, lives. So Read on. In ver, uh, beginning in verse 6. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, says the Lord, for I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven, says the Lord. Up, Zion, escape you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. This is just the opposite of the compound mentality or hiding out. Now, the difference here is he's calling them out of Persia, out of Babylon, the place where they had been taken to uh, in exile. And the place where they had been released from, again, decades before Zechariah wrote this. And now he's telling them, flee, get out of there. Not flee as if you're in danger, but run. Run back to the place that I originally called my people to be. This uh, escape, escape you who dwell. What are they escaping? They're not being threatened in Babylon or Persia at this time. But the thing to escape What they need to escape is this idea that they are just like everybody else. Because after all the time of Israel being in Babylon, or now in Persia, they are simply beginning to assimilate. They're comfortable. And he's saying, that's not where I want you to be. I don't want you to be in a state where you are comfortable being exactly like everybody else around you. So get out. There is going to be a separateness even as I spread you abroad. You're going to be spread abroad, but you have to still maintain your distinct identity as God's people. But it starts with coming out. This would be the, maybe the born-again experience for us. A separation. But then the separation doesn't mean we hunker down and never interact with the world. This gets so exciting. Let's, let's read ahead. Let's get, let's get to the exciting part. You're free to return, but for whatever reason, you're fearful to go back. Maybe you're worried that the provision won't be there. All right? Uh, or maybe you're just too comfortable there in Persia, whatever. Uh, so step back into the land of promise. Embrace the truth that you are set apart as a people of God. And remember, he will be your source, he'll be your glory, and he'll be your protection. And then, verse 8, 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, He sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For surely I will shake my hand against them, and they shall become spoil for their servants. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. When it says uh, they touch the apple of my eye, we, we, have, we use the phrase apple of my eye as something we really adore. What that, word, what that verse is really saying is when they touch you, they poke me in the eye. The apple of the eye is like the pupil of the eye. Has nothing to do with like, hey, I like them, leave them alone. It's, it's, a, it's a very sharp, personal thing that God receives when his people are attacked. Have you ever, uh, I don't know if anybody's like this, but me, let me, let me start with this. I'll share a stupid story about my, uh, my reaction to pain here in a little bit. But I, I, I mentioned last week, I think, that I'd been reading some stuff about World War II. And there's a quote that probably most of you have heard at one time or another. It's attributed to Admiral Yamamoto, who was the architect of the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, who said this right after Pearl Harbor, uh, who is reputed to have said this. I fear... All we have done is awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve. Now, there is no written evidence, uh, no hard evidence that he actually said that or that he wrote it, but there is a ton of evidence that that is exactly how he felt. He had drawn up this plan in peacetime uh, for execution under a certain set of circumstances and was horrified that he was ordered to carry it out under those circumstances. And so this was this was the attitude he carried uh, to to his grave, which was that this was a mistake. We should we shouldn't have done this because this is what's going to be the result. I shared with you uh, uh, last uh, when I was talking about this last time that there were people who, when they, people all over the world, people who are allies, people who were enemies, but uh, it was a universal understanding that once Pearl Harbor happened, uh, that Hitler's days were numbered. They knew as not, not, they didn't know after we declared war. They didn't know after we landed. They didn't know. All they knew is that we had been attacked. And there were people who literally rejoiced because they knew because of that the war was won. And my, the direction I went with that the other night was let's don't wait until we're bloodied. Let's carry the fight to the enemy. Let's don't wait until we are really being pressed by the enemies of Christianity, by the enemies of God. Let's carry, let's, let's carry out this great commission on the offense. And this is the idea, what happened when the, the Japanese attacked. I mean, people got overnight. Now, the, pacif- the ultra-pacifists, there were people who protested the war all the way through the war. But overnight, the approval for the idea of war skyrocketed. Why? And, and Hawaii wasn't even a state. But our Navy was attacked, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, a great number of Americans were ready to fight. It was like getting poked in the eye. But we would say, uh, don't poke the bear, right? And this is what Yamamoto said. We've awakened a sleeping giant. It was a giant. A lot of danger there, but they are asleep. Why did we wake them up? So why, again, why should we wait until we're bloodied? But I mentioned this Yamamoto quote here today in a different context. When God's people are attacked, it's like poking God in the eye. Now, am I the only one who has ever reacted violently to pain? There was a, uh, I used to work the night shift at a couple different grocery stores. And uh, I can remember I had this, he was actually a friend of mine. I won't name him, some of you might even remember him. And he was a squirrely little guy who could be real irritating. Uh, but we got along. I was one of the few friends that the, the guy actually had. I was, I was an ally of his. Okay. But he, uh, he could be, he could kind of grade on you with his managerial style. And he was standing there in the aisle and it was, the, it was the candy aisle. And I had, uh, remember the, I don't know if they still have it, the Brock's pick-a-mix and, and they had all the different individually wrapped Brock's, Brock, uh, Brock's, Brock's candies that you could put in a bag. And, uh, I had loaded those up and then I'm, I'm going down and going down the aisle working and, and I'm getting a little irritated because the managers stand there just kinda he's in a goofy mood, so he's just like eh, he's messing stuff up and I'm making my job take longer. And finally and I'm just he <laughs> tried to laugh and laugh it off and at one point he picks up a like a butterscotch, a hard candy, and throws it and hits me in the side of the head. Now I didn't bleed. I didn't bruise, but man, it hurt. It hit me just right at a spot where it felt like I got stabbed. And I was probably from here to Mike Dilly, and I just ran down the aisle, and I grabbed him, and I picked him up in the air, and I threw him on the ground. I physically assaulted the guy. And he knew he... <laughs> just clapping. And also, you know, night crews can be kind of a rough and tumble group anyway, uh, and as soon, I mean, I, I really, he, again, he was a little guy, and I was in the prime of health. I probably could have picked him up over my head and broken him over my knee. I didn't. I just kind of picked him up and threw him. And, you know, then it's like, oh, okay, what am I doing? Got to get control, you know, uh, you know, turn back into Bruce Banner now that I've hulked out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and, and my friend, the manager, just kind of like, okay, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He, it wasn't like... Ah, you're fired. I'll have your job for this. I'm going to call the cops. We were friends, and suddenly we were friends again. He knew he had blown it. He had stepped over a line, but this was a guy I liked <laughs> who could irritate me, but you know what set me off? The pain. The pain. And how you can go from being happy to being furious or sad or something just like that if the pain is sudden and intense enough. Watch me. Riley, keep your eyes open for a second. (laughs) You were going to do it. You were going to let me do it, weren't you? You're a good kid. Except I don't want to get body slammed by that guy. (laughs) Now, that's not a perfect illustration of God because God doesn't lose control. And the idea of the sleeping giant is not a, a perfect illustration because God neither slumbers nor sleeps. And yet it is God himself who says, he who touches you pokes me in the eye. He wants us to see that illustration anyway. And that ought to make us pretty confident. He takes it personally. Let's read on here for a second. What's going to be the upshot of all this? Chapter 2. Beginning in verse 10, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I dwell, I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and they shall become my people and I will dwell in your midst. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you and the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the holy land. And will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent all flesh before the Lord. For he is aroused from his holy habitation. I want you to see a couple things in these last passages. Number one. You notice how it says. uh, Thus saith the Lord. The Lord has sent me. Thus saith the Lord. The Lord has sent me. And then sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and will dwell in your midst. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst. This is a messianic prophecy. It's talking about Jesus. When our, now, again, it's super important to recognize that from the beginning of the law, there was always provision for the nations, the Gentile world, to enter in to fellowship with the Jews. They could adopt the law. They could become circumcised and then at that point God says, you treat the stranger just as you do those in your midst. If they're willing to submit to my law. And again, God's plan was I'm going to bless you as a nation to such a degree that the nations around you are going to be are going to want in. It's just that the Jews never lived it. Uh For any length of time, or with any effectiveness, long enough to convert the nations. There were people, but not whole nations. And now he's saying, the nations are going to come to you. And they're going to be my people. In what day? Well, saying, uh, that last bit there. He has sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you. This is talking about the advent, the first advent. When Jesus came, when did we start to see this beginning to be fulfilled in earnest? The early church. First time we see it is in Cornelius' house. This is when the Jews themselves start to wake up to the fact that, oh, Jesus didn't come just to save us. He came to save everybody. And then we see it really taken off under Paul's ministry, whose letters we're reading now on Sunday mornings, where he's establishing whole churches, whole communities of believers in the Gentile world. And this is going to continue to happen. This is the whole idea of going to all the world. This is the whole idea of world missions. It's really the whole mission of the church. So this is the plan, according to Jesus. Don't hunker down. Don't fear. God is in our midst He supplies us, he protects us, and those who attack us are attacking God. He will act. The one thing we can be confident of is that God, never is there a point where God is not taking notice of our suffering, of our persecution. The plan, as always, throughout all of this, is not our survival, but To draw those who are outside to the inside. If you look there in verse eleven, let me find that again. Uh, Then you will then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. This is the eyes of Israel being opened. The Jews in the last days. They're going to realize one day, we know this, uh, that the, they're going to realize that the Messiah they've been waiting for was here 2,000 years ago. And so that, again, that it was, they'll look back and see that that's when this prophecy began to be fulfilled. This, this whole passage is a picture of the growth of the kingdom of God and that it's going to include the growth of the local church. Now, there's one thing I love hearing about from missionaries. This is where I'm kind of bringing this around to, to the beginning. One thing I love about hearing from these missionaries is how it transforms my image, for instance, of Muslims. And my image goes from them being enemies and haters of Christian culture to an image of people who are in need of a Savior. We have neighbors, I'm talking about people in St. Joe, who are in need of a Savior. They don't have to be marching around our church with torches for us to see that. They are, with their lifestyle and their values, just as opposed to genuine Christian culture as any Muslim is but they're not framing their displeasure with our priorities in the same, with the same hatred and outright murder. Now, what they do is they simply disdain it. And what are we going to focus on, though? Their need for Christ or the fact that they disdain our love for Christ? I got to share two things with you, and this is something that you know I don't get political very often. Uh, and, but there's some things that we can't tiptoe around. We have to recognize where the fight is being fought. I just There were two quotes. Pastor Mike brought them to my attention, and I went and looked both of them up. There were videos for both of them, and, and I, I'm not going to show you the videos, and I'm not going to quote it exactly, but I promise you it's accurate. Uh, one was from uh, uh, Beto, right? Uh, he, he were, uh, they were having a, uh, what was this? A, a, uh, it was the first ever convention specifically to address LGBTQ plus issues and not everybody was there but the different candidates were there and so they were asked being asked their positions on certain things and one one of them specifically asked Beto does this mean that you would support uh, the loss of tax-exempt status For any organization, be it a school or a church, that does not uh, promote or accept gay marriage. In a nanosecond, he answered, yes. Huge applause. Because the political way of handling that would have been, well, let me explain a couple of things. And you try to straddle this fence. First time I can remember anybody coming out and saying, yes, that's exactly what I mean. And then goes on to say, because you cannot allow religious liberty to trump individual choice. Religious rights don't trump individual rights. The next was Cory Booker, who was being asked a question of a girl who said, I was raised in a Christian school, and there were several of us who wanted to start an LGBTQ plus club. And we weren't allowed to. I had a friend in a Catholic school. They went through the same thing. How can you balance uh, our individual freedom with our Christian values? And Booker said, this is a great question. I grew up in a Christian home where we had to wrestle with this because my mom would tell me stories about how Christians used to use the Bible to justify slavery and justify violations of civil rights. And my answer is simple. Micah 6 tells us what God requires of us. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly. To walk humbly. He leaves out something important there for one thing. It's walk humbly with your God. And then he says this, your beliefs can't be valid if you're using them, for instance, to deny health care to others. Now we need a definition of biblical humility for one thing because biblical humility is biblical obedience we've talked about this before i'm not going to preach that sermon right now i need to be wrapping this up you know what else he needed to define there in that statement because i'll tell you what that's the kind of statement that really lights a fire if he's talking about denying health care to somebody who doesn't share your beliefs i agree man that's a horrible picture to have a doctor say i'm not treating this guy's cancer because he's gay that's wrong but we're not talking about that are we you have to understand what they mean by health care is are your insurance dues and our public funds your insurance rates going to be affected and public funds going to be used for sex reassignment surgery that's what the question is that's health care so these are things that need to be talked about but they don't talk about them in those terms I want to end on this note. Here's why I brought that up. When I hear someone make a mockery of what I believe because they have a childish understanding of what I believe. When I hear someone championing individual choice and elevating it over the revealed will of the living God, I get mad. I don't mind that they disagree. It's when they make it very clear that the reason they disagree with what I believe is because they've got this very narrow, inaccurate idea of what I believe. And that's what they're disagreeing with. Or, and that's being generous. Many of them don't disagree at all. They're just blowing with the political wind. And they're saying and doing whatever they can that's going to get them in power. Neither here nor there. As a Christian, I can't stand hearing somebody say, I'm a Christian too, but religious belief has to take a back seat to individual choice. Your, your individual choice can't be elevated above God. And how can you call yourself a Christian if that's what you really believe? So what happens? I get mad. And when I'm mad, here's the problem. When I am mad, it's easy for me to forget that they need Jesus. It's easy for me to forget that, except for the fact that God opened my eyes, I would be as blind as they are. And so would you. I don't want them crushed. I want them delivered I want them delivered from the wretched chains and the deception that they are in my freedom praise God for my freedom but my freedom makes me want to see all people free free from poverty free from sickness free from death free from fear and free from sin and that praise and worship team coming up here that is the ministry of reconciliation that God has given to you, that God has given to me. There is a mission field right out there. And the next time a missionary comes here, I want to have some stories for them. You hear me? I love it when they come in off the field and say, let us tell you what happened this year. We opened the doors of three new churches. We sent out a hundred missionaries. We saw 10,000 salvations. We saw this many baptisms. We saw this, that. And it's encouraging. It's, and it, I praise God for it because, hey, the, the, his truth is marching on. The gospel is spreading even in this world. And it makes us, uh, it encourages us because like we have been giving to that. That means we have a part in it. It means the ground we have been sowing to is good ground. So let's keep doing it. Meanwhile, there are people on Winston Avenue and Crestwood and Linden and let's name some of these other streets, I don't know, uh, Glover, who need Jesus every bit as badly as a Muslim living in Baghdad. And what are we doing about them? All the money we send to Pioneers International isn't going to do one thing to take the gospel to them. Good news is, ain't going to take a lot of money. Knock on the door, an invitation to dinner, a conversation, an invitation to church. It is risky because this is a world, even in this idyllic town that so many people want to live in. It's still risky because even in this town, there are people who despise the gospel, who disdain us for being Christians. And sometimes we'd rather just be camouflaged. We're comfortable in Persia. We have got to do something to stand out as believers. And it's twofold your lifestyle and your witness, your message. Nobody's going to get saved just because you live clean. But nobody's going to take your message if your lifestyle doesn't match it. Nobody's going to take your message seriously. So we have to live right, but we have to share the gospel, even if. But I'm afraid some people are going to reject it. They are. Let me promise you, you will be rejected. But not by everybody. Everybody. How many people are you willing to be rejected? You know there are people, sorry, I thought I'd be done by now. You know there are people who make a living, a very good living, as telemarketers, who are probably rejected 99 times out of 100, pro- very rudely sometimes. Take this number off your list and never call me again. I'm eating dinner. Hello. Just keep going down the list. A lot of it's done by computer now, but you know people did that and still do it. Why? It's worth it. Ninety-nine rejections is worth it for that one sale. And we can say, can we say that ninety-nine rejections is worth it for that one soul? And I know you all agree in principle. Who are you going to talk to this week? Who's going to be here next week because of you? Who's going to be there? In a hundred years because of you. Nothing we are trading this comfort for is worth it. Trading for this comfort is worth it. We can sit back and get along with everybody and not offend everybody, but the more we take that attitude, the more we're living like we're in a compound, the more we're living like we're in Babylon. Even if we're not partaking in the sin, we're afraid to stand out. But we need to stand out if we're going to be the people Jesus Christ called us to be. And one day, and it will happen very soon, I believe, and very suddenly, I know, we're going to be standing there and wonder, what the heck was I waiting on? Why did I waste that time? There was only one thing that was worth it, and now it's too late. It was never about just you getting to heaven. It was about you bringing people with you. Stand up with me. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.